imagine a peaceful protest. What do you see? Young people coming together, playing music and holding posters. Some may even bring their pets. Is there anyone you'd associate at this protest? Maybe a family member, a friend or a colleague? Someone who believes there's an issue and wants to address it. And how do you imagine the atmosphere? Hopeful? Tolerant? Now imagine a war zone. What do you see? Heavy tanks, weaponry, people being beaten, injured and killed. And how do you imagine the atmosphere? Chaotic, oppressive, violent? Now merge these images together. Difficult, isn't it? At no point would the exercise of our democratic right to protest and the use of violence and suppression go hand in hand. Yet this seems to be the case. Paramilitary policing is the use of methods of coercion, aggression, and in some instances, the incorporation of military technology to handle protests. What is most frightening is a growing willingness to use it. Allow me to put this in perspective. During the 2009 G20 protest in London, one student was carried off unconscious and police surrounded the protest with armoured vehicles. Amongst all this, an innocent bystander who had nothing to do with the protest was attacked by the police and died. Travel across the Atlantic to Ferguson in America, which stands as a constant reminder of the use of these methods. Following the death of Michael Brown, many gathered to peacefully protest and they were met with heavy aggression from the police, including curfews and lawful arrests and roads were blocked with military-grade tanks. Amongst all this, the police were heavily armed. Would you ever have imagined civilians being subjected to fear, intimidation and unconstrained military-style policing in two of the world's leading democracies simply because they're exercising their democratic right to protest? During this podcast, I'm going to explore the use of paramilitary force in protest and compare its use in the UK and the US. The emergence of these techniques sit uncomfortably with history, ideologies of democracy, and even the sentiment amongst the military in America. Historically, policing has been based on consent and community methods. I spoke to Dr. Ilan Wall, who observed the following, when Sir Robert Peel, the founder of the Metropolitan Police, came back to London to establish a community policing system. Dr. Wall is an associate professor of law at the University of Warwick and has published various articles on the matter. So when Peel came back to the UK, he insisted that the police force were neither an extension of the judiciary nor a military force. Instead, they were a civil power. And as a civil power, they were not to stand above the population, but rather they were at the same level as the populace. Look at this from a different angle. Suppressing democratic dissent and protest goes against the very tenets of democracy. I spoke to Dr. Redcott, a professor in the Conflict Studies Programme at the Faculty of Human Sciences at St. Paul University. Dr. Redcott is a leading academic in the field of police and protester relations, having published various articles and books on the matter. The capacity and right to protest is an essential part of um, a democracy, because if we don't have that right, uh, we're going to be governed by potentially by tyrants who just tell us exactly what to do. What is worse and makes matters more confusing is that the military in America themselves have made it clear that the police should not be adopting such methods. It seems that we're at a point where fundamentally and historically there is no place for such policing methods, yet they have still managed to emerge. 
Perhaps the most widely endorsed view in understanding the use of aggressive policing is that relating to crowd psychology. Crowd psychology, as Professor Stephen Riker notes, relates to the broad study of how individual behaviour is impacted when large crowds group together. There are various views on the crowd. One of the most widely endorsed view is Le Bon's theory on crowd psychology, often referred to as mob psychology. I spoke to Dr Wall who stated that that psychology emphasised the crowd as an irrational entity and in that kind of loss of rationality the, the turn of even the most peaceful people to intense violence. Le Bon is one of the most widely read social theorists in the 20th century, if not the most widely read social theorist. And his work had huge influence from everything from the conduct of the First World War to policing in the UK, in the US. Following this analysis, the issue seems to be that the police view the crowd as an aggressive group. Understandably, the police respond with equal aggression. However, it is widely known that a large majority of demonstrations tend to be peaceful. With this, one would assume that in realising that large crowds does not always equate to violence, the police would be able to change their approach to policing and we would not see such a frequent use of paramilitary methods. Looking at the situation in the UK, I studied Dr. Wall's work, where he compared the first public order policing manual and the most recent one. What he noted were several paradigm shifts in policing, away from aggression, intimidation and violence, and towards liaising with protesters and respecting them. Despite these changes, the use of violence against protesters has not stopped. For example, the anti-fracking movement has been described as the UK's fastest growing social movement, with numerous protests across Britain each year. Most protesters come to peacefully protest, yet there have been instances where the police have been violent. Earlier last year, for example, protesters reported that they were being beaten, assaulted, and that there were mass arrests when they were simply peacefully protesting. The policing of this protest was known as Operation Geraldton, and as described by Professor Joanna Gilmore from the University of York, despite the professed commitment to dialogue and facilitation, Operation Geraldton consisted of two distinct styles of policing. On the one hand, the deployment of public liaison officers portrayed a more consensual and community style of policing. At the same time, protesters experienced the more familiar styles of coercive policing, which damaged the police legitimacy in the aftermath of the G20 protests in London. This suggests that attitudinal changes towards the crowd has not entirely had the desired effect. With this, it's clear that analysing the issue from a crowd psychology lens is not sufficient. Still in search for answers, I looked at the situation in America, where I studied the justifications from proponents of these policing methods. I wanted to find out if there was a legitimate need for these methods. The following clip from James Comey, the former United States Deputy Attorney General and the former Director of the FBI, summarises the justifications for these methods. I think it's very important to remind our fellow citizens that we need a range of weapons and equipment to respond and protect our fellow citizens and protect ourselves. Is Mr. Comey right in that policing protests today is a violent task? I spoke to Dr. Redcock, who spoke about a die-in-the-ditch situation. You have this die-in-the-ditch 
there are certain circumstances, there are certain lines that just absolutely cannot be crossed. You cannot allow protesters to enter into, into Parliament. Professor Redcott's contention was that by establishing a boundary, it is only when that boundary is crossed and real threats of harm materialise that the police can resort to violent and non-facilitative methods. Until then, the duty of the police is to respect protesters and their right to carry out protests peacefully. I couldn't help but wonder, where does this misconception of violence come from and why is it so widely endorsed? I spoke to Dr. Peter Krasker, a professor in the School of Justice Studies at Eastern Kentucky University. He is a leading scholar in the areas of police and criminal justice and his research has received widespread recognition, including the US Senate Committee, where in 2014, he testified on the topic of police militarization. Policing has always had a long running problem of managing their appearances and struggling with what Peter Manning called the impossible mandate. You know, this really tough situation to be in where you have a monopoly on the use of violence, uh, people's power to use force has been stripped from them, therefore they entrust you with using violence against them if they need to, you know, all these inherent contradictions of, very difficult place to be, which I absolutely empathize with the situation the police have been put in. So how do they make sense of it? What do they do? How do they figure it all out? Well, lots and lots of them in a country that values military superiority over everything else, of course we're going to have a large segment of police chiefs and police officials say the things to themselves like, you know what, we are soldiers in the, on the front line of the war on crime, and uh, we need to pull out all the stops, all, anything aggressive, anything we have at our disposal to put this stuff down. It is clear that there is a place for these policing methods, but they are for very specific situations. Simply put, they should not be the default approach to responding to protest. So is this the reason it has been able to become so prominent? Is it these narratives with the police being soldiers that make these techniques the default approach? The following clip describes the police's attitudes towards paramilitarization. You're riding on the outside of these armored vehicles. I remember the first time I did it, I'm just trying not to smile. Like it was just so much fun. I thought it was so cool. Obviously, we don't have it as bad over here as they do in Iraq or Afghanistan, but we come across threats too, that military training is going to help. The attitudes and culture amongst the police suggest that there is a necessity for paramilitary policing methods. Like Mr. Comey, they believe that they are fighting a war, with the enemy being their civilian population. With this, I began to wonder, are these methods so deeply entrenched in American policing that has become the norm for policing protests? I spoke to Dr. Kraska, who observed... For the last 30 years, we've had a military training program where SWAT teams, civilian police, go and train with military special operations groups like the Green Berets and the U.S. Navy SEALs. They train with them on how to do these kinds of activities. And this is culturally intoxicating. Uh, young men and some older men, chiefs of police, that have warrior fantasies indications of toxic masculinity and a penchant for 
raw militarism, not geared at external enemies around the world. It seems that the police have failed to internally compartmentalise the use of paramilitary units to high-risk situations only. On the contrary, they have allowed it to become the default use of policing for reasons relating to police culture, the availability of military weapons, and as Dr. Kraska describes, warrior fantasies. The education the police receive, the predispositions of those entering into the police force, and their experiences reinforce this violent perspective. So how has this culture emerged? Where does this police aspiration to become a warrior cop, as Professor Kraska noted, come from? One would assume that politicians or the judiciary would carry out checks and balances on the police to ensure that they conduct themselves in an appropriate manner that does not compromise key features of democracy. So what has supported and enabled this culture? The following statement is from Senator Claire McCaskill at a Senate committee hearing in 2014 where the Deputy Undersecretary for the Acquisition of Military Weaponry for the Defence Department was being questioned as to why surplus army weaponry was being offered to local police departments. Such weaponry included bayonets. She identifies the following as a reason for the use of these methods. In Dr. Coburn's state, the Payne City Sheriff's Office has one full-time sworn officer. One. They've gotten two MRAPs since 2011. How in the world can anyone say that this program has a one lick of oversight if those two things are in existence? In addition to lack of oversight, I decided to explore other macro factors that have contributed to the use of these methods and allowed it to spiral out of control. I began by examining the level of political outcry in both the UK and the US. I found that in the UK, politicians often actively condemn mishandling of protests. For example, the former Prime Minister David Cameron in 2010 made a speech at the aftermath of a large student protest. He reaffirmed his position that the government and the police must facilitate one's right to protest. Equally, he said that protesters needed to respect the rule of law and assist the police in keeping the situation calm. I spoke to Dr. Redcock, who observed... If you work with political leaders and you, you get political leaders uh, uh, tuned in to the point where they, uh, they say, they, they show that they got the message. I mean, that can make a huge difference. And offers a partial explanation for why the situation of paramilitary policing has not escalated at the level it has in the US. When I investigated the political involvement in the US, I saw the complete opposite to that in the UK. There has been very little political movement in keeping protests civil and peaceful. I spoke to Dr. Kraska, who observed... In the United States, there is tremendous political power that supports police militarization, and the over-policing of protests. We have very strong police unions in some police departments, and they're really resistant to change. And at the national political level, you have somebody like Barack Obama, who was very sympathetic from all indications uh, uh, in, in, in those people that were concerned about police militarization. So he puts together, you know, uh, commissions and, and special reports and let's look at all of this and the kinds of things that Barack Obama espoused in wanting to happen, none of them happened. To make matters worse, I learned about the 1033 program and political support for paramilitary policing. 
which have enabled the US police to adopt such brutal methods. The 1033 program gives various state police departments military-grade weapons and machinery free of charge to use when policing. As a result, the police have the tools and weaponry to make their warrior cop fantasies a reality. I spoke to Dr. Kraska, who observed, Barack Obama was asked, why not stop the 1033 program? And Obama said, absolutely, let's turn off the spigot. And they ended up coming up with eight points of reform to rein in the 1033 program under the notion that it would ratchet back police militarization. There was a golden opportunity to really make a difference, and yet no difference was made. The encouragement from the government to use these weapons through the 1033 program is supported by the lucrative arms industry, which has exacerbated the use of paramilitary weapons by the police. The ability of arms manufacturers and dealers to play on the police's warrior cop fantasies through well-organized marketing campaigns and product innovation has further normalized the use of these methods. I spoke to Dr. Kraska, who observed, they know that you know police departments are going to be willing to spend upwards of $15,000 per weapon. And as a result, further encourage police departments to buy aggressive weapons when in fact it is not needed. So far we have learned that a range of factors such as psychological, political and cultural come into play when understanding the issue of paramilitary policing. We have also learned that whilst these policing methods are used in the UK, there is a clear difference between the way they are used in the US and the UK with the US adopting these methods at an alarming rate. In some ways, it seems that the US stands as a warning to countries across the world, including the UK, of how these policing methods can spiral out of control. But where does the protester sit amongst all this?